The Off The Ball Podcast on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station. Now you're welcome back. We're continuing our History of Sport in Ireland series. We've Paul Rouse with us as usual, professor at the UCD School of History, author of Sport and Ireland, a History, and more recently, The Hurlers. And we are into week five, Paul. I was talking to somebody last week who heard you talking in week four and they thoroughly enjoyed it but they were complaining to me that we barely scratched the series we barely scratched the surface how could we claim this was a history of sport and we we, you know covered so little and then I explained to him it was a series running over weeks and he thought oh okay that makes more sense he thought we did too much of a deep dive for an entire history of sport to just focus last week on uh, rugby and soccer in England so he wasn't aware it was a series so we're doing a well up to this could be 10 11 weeks job I think so. Um, I think so. Well, we'll we'll see how we'll see how we keep going. But I think uh, week five, you see it with students in week five, they begin to get a little bit itchy. Assignments are coming in, and of course, you'll get your essay this evening, for uh, which will be due for for, for next week. But I think people, um, yeah, it, even if we do ten or eleven, twelve weeks, you are obviously only hitting the surface of some sports, let alone in in one lecture. But what we're really trying to do is to set out the broad parameters of why we play the, the sports that we play in the way that we play them. And it's obviously a complicated story and it's a story that fits within the history of Ireland. But I think if people get a broad outline from, of that history, then we've, we've achieved something. So last week we talked about England, 19th century, the formation of soccer and rugby as we know them, or as close to, you know, the, the, the formation of them in, in, in some kind of recognisable fashion and some kind of organised fashion. And that was where we, will, we left things off. And so we'll pick things up this week with how that impacted in Ireland. So we're talking here in broad terms, what today is about is the, the spread in some respects of English sport to Ireland post-famine. That's exactly what we're, we're talking about. And we're not saying that sport hadn't spread to Ireland before the famine, because we know from what has happened, well, from what happened with, for example, cricket, that this was a, a process that was already in place. And we're not saying that Ireland was the only place, of course, that English sports spread to because, of course, Ireland was absolutely rooted, not just within the, the British Empire, but also in the middle of the 19th century within the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And that absolutely affected how sport was organised in Ireland in the 19th century and continues to affect our sporting world uh, as as is made clear all around us um, in any given weekend, in which obviously not at the moment, but in general. Is the British Empire peak of its powers around this time? It's gathering towards the peak of its powers. It The empire became, it's kind of extraordinary when you think about it, just how extensive the British Empire was. It extended across one quarter of the earth and included one fifth of the population of the world. And it had developed... Obviously, there was a proto-empire which was rooted in the, in the kind of the 11th, 12th centuries and that, and it, but it really gathered pace in the, in the century either side of 1800. And what you saw was a global process here, a kind of a form of globalization, an early form driven by, by, by England and, and, of course, by Britishness. And what became known as Englishness and Britishness when Milton together and separating the two are not easy. And it, it, it was, wasn't just a political power. It was also economic power. So it was driven by the sale of, of goods that were made in English factories and spread around the world. 
and it was driven by the control of the seas from the British Navy. And in all of this, Britain became the dominant global power in the 19th century. And around this global power, there was a whole rhetoric that was almost, well, it was religious, partly religious at least, in which missionaries ascribed the imperial success of, of Britain to the, to the will of God. It was also partly scientific because the empire was positive as positive kind of as proof that the British race was the fittest race on earth. And this idea of empire was basically rooted in the idea of the greatness of Britain. And there, there are real kind of clear examples of this. So you look at, say, the arch imperialist and explorer Cecil Rhodes, uh, who put it, remember that you are an Englishman and have consequently won first prize in the lottery of life. And it's this mentality that underpinned the spread of the empire. Obviously, there was also greed uh, and the desire to make money and extend your power around the world and to control the world for the benefit of your people. And in the middle of this was sport. Sport was absolutely emblematic of the English way of, of life. It was woven through the history. And you see some J.E.C. Weldon, who was the headmaster of Harrow School, who we spoke about last week. He was later Bishop of Calcutta. And he wrote that in the history of the British Empire, it is written that England owes its superiority to her sports. That is to say that sport was also then clearly a central part of the imperial world. And in each of its colonies around the world, mm. the British brought their games. So men who, for example, had played cricket at home um, in England, laid down cricket pitches in Calcutta, laid them down in Melbourne, laid them down where, wherever they went. And that's just to use cricket uh, as an example. And somebody like Lord Hawke, who was the president of the uh, MCC, the, the governing body of cricket, stated that cricket had played no small part in cementing the ties that bind together every part of the empire. So sport was not just about play in the ideology of the British Empire. It was also about binding that empire together. And also, it's a kind of a civilizing thing. You may have your traditions of play in your local area. You may be going around with a stick and a ball. You may be hunting pigs in the forest. But look mm -hmm. at us. We do things with elegance. According to rules, we have a code of honor and a code of play. This code comes from our public schools, which we are remaking in your colony mm -hmm. to train your people to be like us. So yeah. sport was part of a, a kind of a civilizing mission as the rhetoric would have had it. So almost a matter of policy and a concerted effort to quote-unquote civilise and, and bind the empire together, but then also married into that a natural thing for people who played certain sports at home when they move abroad to want to play the same sports elsewhere. Exactly, and that's that thing that you come back to. What is the thing that motivates people to play sport? And you have to be very careful about a kind of applying somebody's, your view of their motivation to that person. You are, it's speculation to some extent as to why somebody does something. So obviously there's a love of play. You don't set up a tennis club in, in Sydney if you don't love tennis alone. There must be an element of love of play within that. Now, how you organize that club really matters because if you say, well, we only want British-born people in that club who are out here doing this, or if you do the same in, in Calcutta or wherever you want across India, the great jewel in the crown of the British Empire, if you set up a cricket club there and you, you make it whites only, well, that's a fair statement about drawing a divide between the colonizer and the colonized. Mm. Did you say Calcutta was the jewel in the crown? <clears throat> no, India. India, sorry. Uh, well, I meant to say India. I may have said Calcutta, but I meant to say India. Why was that the jewel in the crown? Well, it's such a like, vast continent and 
There's an amazing book actually that people should read uh, by Shashi Tharoor called Inglorious Empire, What the British Did to India, published by Penguin a couple of years ago. It's actually, it's really good as well. It, the speech that he gave in Oxford in the university, which led to this book, is available online on YouTube. It's really worth watching because it's a repost to people like Niall Ferguson and to a lesser extent, Jeremy Paxman, Paxman who have written these kind of how the British made the modern world, how the British civilized the modern world, the benefits of empire to a people. It is a really strong and necessary corrective mm. where it sets out just how much India was plundered and how much a, a colonies under the British Empire suffered. And of course, British misrule of Ireland in the 19th century was, was utterly endemic. And the Irish situation was in many ways worse than others because, of course, Ireland was part not just of the British Empire, but of the United Kingdom. It had no parliament of its own. And in the middle of that century, suffered a famine, which essentially was what destroyed large swathes of Irish society, cost so many lives. And it was after that famine, in the world after that, that you see the press of British sports mm. all across Ireland. And a quick side point, in English schools, are they exposed to the reposts to the British Empire and the effects of the British Empire? Did they learn both sides of that story? Yeah, that's a really good question. Michael Gove, who people will know has been a current member of the candidate of the cabinet, a leading member of the Brexit campaign and general uh, kind of cheerleader for whoever the Tory prime minister is at any given time. Uh, he was minister for education. He, he sought to introduce a curriculum, history curriculum, where it was all about the glories of empire and that he wanted to issue a corrective to, say, TV shows like Blackadder, where I don't know if people remember the Blackadder scene where the people who led them, say, in the First World War are seen as donkeys, that idea of lions led by donkeys and being kind of useless public school kids. So he wanted a, a, what he called a rebalancing of things, which was basically a celebration of Britain's achievement in establishing an empire around the world. So there was a huge controversy over that and loads of historians pushed back against it. But that teaching of history is really interesting in Britain. There are, it depends on who's doing the teaching and, and the curriculum offers space for that. But you can equally apply that here. Like what history are people taught about here? There's a certain glorification of certain aspects of our history and an ignorance of others. So the teaching of history changes all the time. And there, there, are, there are battles around what should be in a course and what shouldn't be in a course. Because mm. again, and again, I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'm told in Germany, their teachings on World War II and Adolf Hitler, uh, by any measure, are very impressive and very fair and thorough. Yes, and it depends, again, it's a kind of a badge of honour from the German education system that it teaches history in, in that manner. But, but it is a very challenging thing to do to, to establish a history curriculum which, which criticises your own nation. And it's one of those things, if you say anything here that is critical of Irish nationalism in this country, you immediately get slaps. Mm. And it is similarly to other countries, you're seen as being in somehow, somehow unpatriotic, whereas... I think the job of anyone who, who reads history or writes history is to deal as best you can with facts and create a, a rounded position, uh, a rounded understanding of it. And the idea that history needs to be a sanitized fable of the glories of a nation seems to me to be a, a nonsense. And it doesn't, it, it defeats the purpose of what a good history course should do. So Ireland post-famine, as we move into the latter half of the 19th century, where are we in terms of demographics, in terms of daily life? Economically, I presume things are still very poor. Things are exceptionally poor. You have a, about 5,000 
landlords who own essentially all the land of the country and you have around them beneath them a row of of tenant farmers who who basically rent the land and are doing their best to survive and you get repeated waves of emigration through the 50s 60s 70s all the way through the 19th century the population of ireland continued to fall and again it remains the case that the population of Ireland uniquely in the Western world is smaller now than it was in 1850, the only place in the world for which you can, you can say that. And it comes from that emptying of the countryside in the 19th century. Now, the British countryside was also emptying in the 19th century, but they were going to work in the factories of the new conurbations of England. What was happening in Ireland is that the only real industrial conurbation was, or industrial urban area was, was Belfast and the Belfast shipyards and everything that happened and flowed from those under linen uh, factories. And uh, so you had the population of Belfast was growing during those years from 15,000 at the beginning of the century to 350,000 at the end of it. So you get a vast explosion of industrialized Belfast with its rows of terrace blocks, a kind of a Carnation Street style uh, development of, um, of urban life there. And that was to prove hugely important to the development of sport in Ireland, as, as we will see. But around that, you do get a general growth of, of urban areas, to, of, of Irish people living in the urban areas to 35%, up from 15 at the beginning of, of a sudden. But that's much less than in Britain. And you do get some gains in income as the century goes on, but these are relatively slight. What you do have, though, are technological revolutions which really matter. There were 65 miles of railway in Ireland in 1850. By the time you get to 1900, there are 3,500 miles of railway. So the whole, the whole um, of the island is like a spider's web of rail going around it, bringing people from place to place. And that allows for the creation of a natural, national culture of play. And that really matters because you can go around the island on a given day and go home because of the nature of the train timetable and allows you to play a game. Uh, you can go from Belfast and play in Cork and get home that day and in a way that you never could previously. So that really matters. There was also a newspaper revolution which allowed for the coverage of these new games that were played around the place. And people were going to national school, were more literate. 90 odd percent of the population were literate by the end of the century. Mm-hmm. And that really mattered. So that, that, was, that was happening. And so, so that change in society really mattered. And finally, what also mattered was the divided nature of Irish society because the idea that putting a parliament in the House of Commons would some, somehow reach a settlement of the Irish uh, political scene was, of course, a nonsense. There were huge divides along identity lines in Ireland between those who espoused Britishness and those who espoused Irishness. And this really mattered when it came to the construction of the sporting world. Identity politics were remade through sport and this, of course, led to the idea of, inverted commas, foreign games. This is probably an impossible question to, to answer then as we, as we move into the foreign games arriving. Do we have any way of knowing, because I don't suspect we were doing polls back then, if you were to bump into an average person in the street and say, do you want the Brits out of here? Would 99% of Irish people in that second half of the 19th century have said, yes, absolutely? No, they, they definitely wouldn't have said, uh, yes, uh, absolutely. You, have a, you had a divided public between, between people who were, and there is no getting away from the fact that religion, of course, wrapped itself like bindweed around everything that happened in the Ireland time. Ireland time. This is a really crude 
um, divide, but there was the idea of being Protestant and Unionist and being Catholic and Nationalist. Now, that is way, way too simplistic, and I can't say that clearly enough, but it meant straight away you were talking at a basic million people who are essentially loyalist and British and, mm. and, and who gave their allegiance there. So that's your starting point for that, for that, for that divide. Mm. In terms of, of, and that doesn't mean that there weren't Catholics who weren't utterly committed to the British Empire and that there weren't Protestants who, were, who believed in an independent Ireland. There were, of course, both of those things. And then when you look at the nationalist community themselves, it was utterly divided between the, those on the margins who were revolutionaries uh, and believed in the, the attainment of an independent Ireland through armed struggle. And then there were those in the middle who were nationalist but got on with things. And then mm. there were those on the other side who they would call themselves Irish, but they were wedded to the culture of the British Empire. Okay. And so it's a very divided society. And this really matters when it comes to sport. Yes, that's very useful to know. So cricket, let's, let's do, that, do that as the jumping off point, which, you know, as, as we've talked about several times before, was incredibly popular, if not the most popular sport for a period in the late 19th century. So cricket then, in light of what you've just said, doesn't necessarily fall along uh, nationalist lines or non-nationalist lines. No, it absolutely doesn't. So there's obviously, there's the garrison game element of cricket, the fact that there was a cricket pitch laid out at every British barracks in the country, the fact that all the biggest states in the country or many of the biggest states had cricket pitches, all of that kind of tells you of a world in which it was a British sport. But there's a really interesting place to start from when it comes to cricket, and it's in a, a shop on Grafton Street, uh, John Lawrence's shop. Now, John Lawrence opened this shop in the 1860s, and what John Lawrence's shop was was basically a sports shop one of the first in the country. And what he did was he sold sports equipment and sports clothes. And um, he also published a handbook of cricket in Ireland from 1865 to 1881, 16 editions. And he laid out year after year the spread of cricket across Ireland. So even by 1870, for example, there were 120 cricket clubs in Ireland, one in every country, uh, one in every county in, in the country. And the world that he showed was he was such a clever man. He, he made a lot of money, at least he made a living out of sport. So he didn't just publish that book. He didn't just sell his sports equipment. He rented out rooms to the sports clubs who didn't have them in Dublin and thereby drawing them into his shop before they went up to their meetings. He just gave them, sorry, he didn't rent them out. He gave them to them for free. But he only used to go around when there were balls on or big sports days going on and he'd put on fireworks displays for the people who were running the sport. So he would make money through, through that as well. And if you look at Lawrence's books, you can see through the 1870s the growth in the number of cricket clubs and cricket teams because there were teams that represented, like News Talk might have a soccer team, but it's not a soccer club. So you might just feel the team on an ad hoc basis. So it's not just a club which runs through the year, but it's also groups of people getting together to field teams. Mm. So this was happening all the way through the 1870s and the 18. It was so big in 1875 the Freeman's Journal, the largest Catholic newspaper in the country, devoted to ideas around Irish nationalism, said that talked about the spread of cricket, talked about how it was everywhere in the country and wrote, we may take it for granted that the youth of this country will establish it permanently. Basically, that crisp cricket was now the game and it would dominate uh, Ireland, which, and it was the most played game in Ireland in the 1870s. Mm. So clearly it's not just people of... Um British extraction who are into it and who like it and enjoy it. It's, it's, it's the most popular game. It's played by everyone. Uh, well, Lawrence, Lawrence kind of told, Lawrence kind of sold his sports stuff as being, he, he kind of, in his ads, he used to say that uh, 
he used to sell stuff for British sports in Ireland. And, and that, that is true. That there were, it was a British sport and it was part of the garrison. But if you look at records from the National Folklore Collection in UCD, you say stuff like people like the ordinary Irish-speaking tenant farmers like Johnny Hawk down in Newcastle West who talk about, yeah, he gives this record where he says, yeah, we saw the people, the landlords playing it and we imitated them and we played the game for ourselves. And all across Ireland, you see ordinary country people from villages who get up their own teams to play the game. And it was a grand way to spend an afternoon. Trinity College you wanted to mention? Oh yeah, you have to talk about Trinity College when it, when, it, when it comes to sport. It's a central staging point for the organisation of sport in Ireland because of the people come through it. Now Trinity had been formed and uh, founded in 1592 and it's a well over 20, 25 acre site in the middle of the city. And in the middle of that campus, the Trinity campus was a five acre grassy area which kind of became an informal home for a variety of sports in the 19th century. And Trinity became a staging point for stuff like athletics, but also for sports like rowing. So rowing, obviously they didn't row on the grass, but the people who were training on the grass came together as Trinity students and founded the Pembroke um, Boat Club. And that then became the Dublin University Boat Club. And the spread of rowing out for there through organised regattas happened all across Ireland during this year. The idea was you form a club now and you, it's not that people start to row against each other and finally said, oh, we'll have races. People had rowed boats against each other in competition for as long as we have a record. But this is organised in clubs for set competitions. But most of all, you see it with, 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 with Trinity. The cricket pitch was laid out in the 1840s. And then in the 1850s, the first organised football club, the Dublin University Football Club, claiming still to be the oldest rugby club in the world, was established in 1854. And there's a brilliant line. I took an ad out in the Dublin newspapers and said, uh, in the Daily Express, and said, football, a match will be played in College Park today, Saturday, between original and new members of the club. Play will commence at two o'clock college time. So there was a very particular time in Trinity College time, which was 15 minutes behind the rest of Dublin life because students wouldn't come to lectures on time. So they just, they had it at college since at two o'clock and week after week from the, through the 1850s, groups of students came together to play football on that grassy area beside the Nassau Street railings in Dublin, in Dublin, two or three times a week. They'd have different teams. They would have medics against the rest. They would play fair hair against dark hair, smokers against non-smokers and so on. And people would gather along the railings to watch this game, this formally organised game, by their rules, be played in Trinity College. Mm. Rugby and or football? Football, not rugby, football. Football. This is before rugby was not established until 1871 and soccer was not established until 1863. So this is 1854. This is our football club. They're playing their own rules. And so what are those rules? It's not quite clear what those rules are are but what they were who were who was playing it there were people there who'd been to secondary schools some of the elite secondary schools in ireland but also in that in that place were english students who had come over to ireland to go to trinity college and also trinity college uh, irish kids irish boys who had gone to school in england who had gone to rugby school and to cheltenham school and various other schools and they brought their games at home and they played there so about a thousand irish boys Mm. In, every, in any given year we're in secondary school in England Okay So then from memory last week where we talked about the origins of rugby and soccer 
1863, I think, was the foundation of the Football Association. That's right. Yeah, then things progressed. FA Cup blossomed and rugby went and did its own thing. So there was a period in England where, and, and across Britain where they had to kind of disentangle what was rugby and what was football from what had been a smattering of people running around in a massive scrum, picking up the ball, hacking each other, kicking the ball on the ground, I'm sure, at times as well. So in Ireland, if the FA in England is founded in 1863 and you're saying first rugby club is closer to 1870, do rugby and soccer pretty much at that period arrive fully formed and separated? No, um, it didn't happen like that at all. Um, Trinity was the only football club in the city of Dublin and in the country during the eighteen fifties uh, and into the 1860s for a long stretch. And what, what happened was um, Trinity just played matches amongst itself. And then as Trinity students went out, they went and played. They, they founded various clubs in, in different places. But the club itself in Trinity didn't really prosper until it had to be reorganized in 1867 by Charles Barrington, who took this sport. He said that there are too many Trinity students who are members of the Grafton Street Harriers, who are kind of fond of parading themselves up and down Grafton Street in their fancy clothes and are not interested in sport. So we kind of reorganized the club and remade its rules in the end of the 1860s. But he didn't affiliate it to the Football Association in England as no club affiliated to the Football Association in England. In fact, the whole way through the 1860s, there was no soccer club in Ireland. You go to 1860, 1875, still no club. And then in 1875 to 1878, you get the first pushings of games being played um, in Ireland, records of them, uh, about, about the game beginning to press its way. But the initial spread of, of either soccer or rugby in Ireland was not soccer, it was rugby. Okay. And you got the spread in the late 1860s and through the 1870s of rugby clubs um, through the play. So North, North of Ireland in 1868, Wanderers 1869 uh, and Lansdowne in 1872, all of whom give their allegiance ultimately to rugby football. That's the sport that they're interested in. And these are the guys who come together in the, on the 10th of December. There's only a smattering of clubs, there's not much more than a dozen football clubs in the country in 1874. And they came together to establish the Irish Football Union. And by that, they meant the Irish Rugby Football Union. Okay. But the 1874, 10th of December, in, in, the, in rooms in Trinity College, is where the Irish Football Union was established. And they were established for the express purpose of picking a team to play an international match against the rugby players of England. What about the first soccer clubs? That's, that's later. Um, so before we get there, we have to talk about what happened with, that, what happened with rugby. In, in, those, in those times because in establishing this international team, it was done so on the idea that it would, be, it would foster mutual respect and toleration between people. I'm not too sure that international sport has actually managed to, to, to do that. It seems to me to be as likely to create bitterness, divide and reinforce stereotypes as it does mm. to, to create kind of any kind of feelings of toleration, particularly because they couldn't even manage in Ireland to keep mutual respect and toleration. There was a split immediately. The Belfast and North, Northern-based clubs decided that they would have no part of this idea. These usurpers from Trinity who were taking control and they founded their own Northern Football Union because they argued that Belfast people weren't being properly represented in the Irish team. So between 1874 and 1879, the Irish Football Union had two unions. There was the Northern Football Union and the Irish Football Union. They came together to pick a team every year 
and they finally joined together under the modern structure of the Irish Rugby Football Union in 1879 with its provincial branch system. So it gave autonomy to the people in Ulster to run things as they were. They essentially neglected Connacht and for many years it was Ulster and uh, Leinster uh, who dominated rugby in, 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 in the country. Okay. So soccer then? Soccer. Um, okay. So soccer is, it's interesting what happened with soccer because it used to always be said that soccer was brought into Ireland by J.A. McCleary, who was a Belfast draper, who was on his honeymoon um, in Scotland where he saw the spread of soccer was going wild at the time. And he thought, I'm going to bring some of that home. Not alone was he going to bring teams over, but he would charge people in. He saw people coming in huge numbers to watch Scottish soccer. So the the view was that he'd rented this uh, ground in, um, in Belfast and that he had brought Queen's Park and Caledonian over on the 24th of October, 1879, charged people in, made a whole load of money. And um, from this, Cliftonville Club was established in 1879, and which McCleary was involved in, and then the Irish Football Association in 1880. So there are bits of that story that are true. But, uh, and when I say, by the way, people used to believe this, that was a story that, that I also uh, used, to, used to think was the truth. But it has been blown out of the water by um, a historian from the North called Martin Moore, who published an article a couple of years ago in uh, an international sports journal in which he showed that McLeary had utterly um, exaggerated his own role in it, that the whole story came from a letter which McLeary had actually written himself in the middle of 1880s, claiming that he was the one he, who established it. His actual line was, alone I did it, which is not true at all. There were other people such as J.A. Allen which were involved. So it is true that a match was played on the 24th of October, 1878. And it is true that it was an important staging point. But what Martin Moore has showed is that from at least 1875, there were also games being played in places like the Ulster Cricket Club where players were playing a variation of soccer in the middle of the 1870s. Similarly, Windsor Soccer, Windsor Football Club had played a match in the 1870s. And David Toms has showed, shown how a similar thing happened in Mallow School um, in 1877. So games were being played on an informal basis around soccer rules in the country. What there hadn't been, though, was the formation of soccer clubs until 1879, which began with Cliftonville. Okay. And it, this, is where, this is where Belfast really mattered. The fact that Belfast was a northern industrial town really mattered because it was in Belfast that soccer spread and spread hugely. There were huge numbers of people from Scotland and from the north of England, less or so, working in Belfast, skilled labourers who were working in, in, the sh- in the shipyards and in all the ancillary industries around the shipyards. So they recreated over the next couple of years that soccer culture from their home place in the urban streets of Belfast. Mm. And if you look at it, in November 1880, when the Football Association was founded, the Irish Football Association, it was founded by five Belfast clubs and two more from Derry. So that tells you that this was uh, a north of Ireland initiative and um by the way people said when they saw that first soccer match in 1878 there was a brilliant report from a local newspaper uh or from from a national newspaper which said that uh this will never take off he said this there's just players running around button at the ball like a pack of young goats and that to train a soccer player you basically would need a, a, a ballet teacher 
to get them fully in kit and that there was no way that Irish people who like Man League com- competition would take the soccer. Uh, entirely wrong, uh, as again, as, as prediction. But what happened then was the game spread all across Belfast and out into those uh, kind of satellite towns of Belfast. And for the first years, it's the IFA Cup, which was established uh, during that time in 1880 and played in 1881. It's around Belfast that the dominant teams were all based. Uh, this is such an exciting period, obviously, in that, you know, all the rugby clubs and football clubs, so many of them that are still in existence and big names today yeah. are founded around this time. I and mean, when you look at Premier League clubs, uh, and, and that extends to here as well. So away from soccer and rugby spreading over, there's also an explosion in terms of things, the other English games. So I suppose things like golf and things like tennis, yeah. all of that is starting to really blossom here. It's all taken off during, during these 1870s and the 1880s. It's amazing the way society works. So the first sports club in Ireland, as we were talking about before, was founded in 1720. It was the Yacht Club. There, were a few, there was hunting and horse racing clubs in the 1850s, or in the 1750s and 1770s and so on. But the full democratization of club-based sport only really happened in Ireland in the 1870s and the 1880s. That's when it all becomes, it basically is an explosion in how society is organized in terms of what people do for recreation. And look at, we won't stick with soccer, but by 1910, there were 420 soccer clubs in Ireland. That's soccer alone. All around the place, there was more than 100 tennis clubs. And that really matters. Tennis pushed in in the 1870s. Lawn tennis, modern lawn tennis, was invented in, in England um, in 1873, more or less, and became a Wimbledon championship. It became a game of the elite where lawn tennis nets were put out on country estates. But it was imitated by the sprawling middle classes who recreated in the suburbs what they wished to see, what we, they wished to be part of. It was a real kind of case of middle class aspiration. But also, middle class exclusion and upper middle class exclusion and elite exclusion. A great example is Enniscorthy Lawn Tennis Club founded in 1890 and restricted to the professional elite of the town. And they had basically a blackballing voting system if you wanted to join the club. So I'm in the town, I work in the bank, I wish to join and I put my name forward, I must get two seconders. Mm. I go in, there's a vote and they actually use these black balls and you drop them in you get three black balls from from three people in the town who don't like you who are members of that club and you don't get in and there are brilliant exchanges of correspondence around people who say that their reputations have been destroyed by the fact that they were blackballed by entry into a into a sporting club so it became a kind of a real see it's one of those things about sport about the idea of sport for all yes to a point but it's also a vehicle for display of wealth and display of exclusivity and to say, I'm part of this culture. Mm. I'm part of this society and you're not. Mm. And that, so it's, 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 a, it's a complicated story in terms of, of, of this spread. So you get, but you still get the spread of a game which is imitated even outside of clubs. Okay. So as we begin to fight the clock and draw towards the end of week five, the, the elephant in the room here is 1884 in the GEA. 1884 in the GEA. An incredible amount of things happened in 1884 in Ireland in, in sporting terms. And it happened, it happened in, like, even in rugby. The foundation of, of, of um, 
rugby as a working class game in Limerick happened in 1884 and flowed out from the establishment of, of Gary Owen Rugby Club. But the great signal moment in the reordering of Irish sport, a moment which turned Irish sport on its head, um, was, took place on the 1st of November 1884 in, in Hayes' Hotel in Thurles, uh, when Morris Davin and Michael Cusick established the Gaelic Athletic Association. And basically, they basically created something which has enormous influence on how we all engage with sport in this country. Whether you love the GEA or you're not involved in the GEA, there is no denying its relevance to what happens around the, around the country. Now, it's really interesting. It's often posited that the GEA brought it because of the nature of its founding, brought a political dimension to Irish sport. And that's true only to a point because that pol- political dimension was already there. Sure. The sports which were already in place, they flew the Union Jack. They had as the patron the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. They had British marching bands there. They were part of a wider empire-related nature of sport. That doesn't mean that everybody who played those sports or even most people who played those sports bought into that imagery. It just acknowledges that that imagery existed. And what the GAA did was, through Michael Cusick, to use his line, we created an opportunity now for you to choose. You can choose British sports or you can choose Irish sports. Now, the fact is that they invented a game called Gaelic football, as we'll discuss next week, and they remade hurling. They didn't, they didn't bring it back, a game that was lost. Again, hurling had never been lost. They had modernized it, and they took control of Irish athletics. And I suppose it is one of the great, little-known, little-remembered facts that it was athletics, which was the dominant sport within the GEA in its, in, its, in its first year. We'll pick up on all those points next week. For the time being, Paul Rouse, Professor at UCD School of History. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks a million, Joe. The Off The Ball podcast on OTB Sports Radio, Ireland's first and only sports radio station.